The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman from The Homes Report. Uh, I'm here in New York, and I'm really happy to be joined by Claudine Moore. Claudine, Hi. welcome. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Um, I wonder if we could start, we're going to talk a little bit about public relations in Africa and about industry diversity, but maybe we could start if you can give us a really quick summary of what you do. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to the Echo Chamber. Um, I listen to this podcast a lot, so to be invited as a guest is um, is an honour, and I appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. So my background really has sort of steeped in the big agencies. Mm. Um, I used to work with Gray. I used to work with uh, McCann Erickson, and one of my last um, corporate roles before I branched out on my own with Seymour Media was I was the U.S. regional um, director for Hill & Norton, uh, U.S. Um, And so sort of about 10 years ago, I sort of branched out on my own, launched Seymour Media, International Public Relations, where we focused on sort of the the triangle, if you like, of the U.K., U.S. and African markets. Mm. Um, At any given time, we have more U.S. business than African, more African business than U.S., but those are the markets that we play in. And um, we have been doing that for the last for the last ten years, as well as um, consulting with different brands. Sometimes I get brought in by different organisations mm. to consult with them on various things. So whether it's consulting with Louis Vuitton and on their internal communication strategy across the US, or doing some internal comms for Johnson Johnson, mm-hmm. just different initiatives that I'll be called in to do. So mm. I work with bigger brands still outside mm. of Seymour Media. Okay, cool. And you do quite a, a reasonable about a reasonable amount of work is cross-border in nature or it yes. involves other countries yes absolutely right? yeah. yeah and that's always been it's been interesting because that's sort of what I sort of fell into I think when I was working in the in the big agencies they were like okay she's a, a Brit but she's in New York so mm. whenever there was any international business straight away I, just, I, I was sort of like put front and center um mm-hmm. to do it or to work on it which was great um and so I always I always enjoyed working across border, if you like, because my perspective is very much cross border. Yeah, um, sure. Being from the UK with Caribbean parents, parents, and mm. now living in the US, mm. you know, so it's like a Caribbean Brit American. So yeah. you know, yeah, perspective is very sort of global. Yeah, and you do a reasonable amount of work in Africa. Yes, um, which makes you something of a rarity, I think, yes. in, in the industry in general, but in particular in the industry here. Yeah. Um, why is that the case? It still seems to me like there's not that, you know, that much interest in Africa from a, from a PR perspective. Yeah, which is, which is quite extraordinary to mm. me because there is so much opportunity and that opportunity will continue to grow. Mm. Um, I came armed with some statistics for you. Okay, good. Um, Just just to talk about the opportunity. So half of the global population between um, now and 2050 will Mm. be in Africa. Yeah. Over half. Yeah. Um, The youth in African markets currently is 19% 19 Mm. of global youth population, which is 226 million. And by 2030, which is only 10 years from now, Mm. the number of youths 
across Africa, use being defined between 14 and 25, um, is going to increase by 42%. Wow. That's okay. a huge opportunity, as well as a threat, mm. but there's a huge opportunity there for, for brands. Um, and consumer expenditure has risen, um, or is going to rise, sorry, to 2.5 trillion by 2030. Mm-hmm. And that's double the levels that is of, of um, double the levels of what it was in 2015. Wow, okay. So where there's that sort of population growth and where there's that sort of increase in consumer expenditure, brands will go mm. because yeah. they've got markets are suddenly wide open mm. um you know and, and then you know that's not even talking about internet penetration mm. which is still very very low across africa so as internet penetration becomes you know uh, gets more and more sort of widespread across the continent that's more opportunity there mm. so a lot of brands are realizing that um and more and more realizing that i think the agencies themselves are still sort of behind when it when it when it comes to mm. what that means for their sort of expansive work with some of their own clients. Yeah. Um and that's for that's for multinational brands and organizations as well as indigenous organizations on the continent too, which right. is still very big. I mean Africa's a big place. Yeah. It's fifty four countries, not not and, one and country. Yeah. <laughs> and and it actually it does it such a disservice to, to even talk about it as mm-hmm. Africa. Mm-hmm. Um you know, when when there are so many, there's such diversity um, of of economies mm-hmm. um, across the region. It seems to me that many networks, when I talk to them, um, just find it challenging to uh, to to build their business mm-hmm. in in African markets. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and typically they focused on, let's say, South Africa, mm-hmm. Kenya, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe Nigeria. Yeah, um, and a few other places as well, but they just, you know, it just seems to be that it's almost too much. They seem to think it's more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, which again, you know, when you look at some of the stats that I just now provided with you for you, and you look at some of, you know, what some organisations and brands are doing across the continent, it's astonishing to me that they would that they would think that. I think part of the reason is that you know. Africa as a continent itself, just looking at the continent as a whole, mm-hmm. has um, has a branding issue. Mm. Um, and I think that's where it sort of starts from. It has a branding issue. Um, bad news is loud. Good news mm. is a whisper. Yeah. So there's a lot of quote-unquote bad news stories out of Africa that will get a lot of, a lot of news. You'll hear about the famines. Yeah. You'll hear about... Um, the diseases, you'll hear about war um, war and security Mm -hmm. issues. But then you don't hear about the fact that brands like Gap and H&M have a lot of their, um, have a lot of factories in Ethiopia and that's Mm. growing. You don't hear about um, the burgeoning technology um, Mm. space across Kenya Kenya, and um, and in Nigeria. You don't hear hear about Mm. those kinds of stories. And as somebody who works with organizations that have some of these good business stories, it's, it's, a, it's a real uphill battle sometimes mm. to get even the media interested. But I know yeah. if I went to the media with a story about Ebola's broken out in this country, mm. I mean, they'd be all over it. So I think to a certain extent, when people are thinking about Africa, before they even think, begin to think about it from a PR perspective, they already have a, a very sort of deep-seated, preconceived notions about what Africa is and what Africa means. Mm. And then once you get past that, the next layer is, well, what does that mean for our business? But you've got to get over that first that first hurdle. Um, mm. You know, what does it mean for our business? And there are opportunities. There are some agencies, I will say, who mm. are doing 
you know, some making an effort to yeah. uh, sort of expand the network. For sure. Um, yeah. From South Africa, you know, mm. and uh, I mean, we can talk about some of the agencies that are making an effort and growing, mm. um, but they're few and far between. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, it it seemed to me about 10 years ago, there was a, suddenly they kind of all woke up to, to Africa and they mm-hmm. needed to be there. Um, and then a lot of them went into South Africa. Yes. And then that's it. I mean, that, that exactly. seems to have been the extent and that, and of it. And that's it. And, and South uh, Africa is, obviously, it's a it's a unique country within Africa itself. Absolutely. So. Abs- I mean, South Africa is not Africa. Ooh, I mean, it's funny. You wouldn't I mean, tell a South I mean, African I mean, that. Exactly, you wouldn't. But when I, when, I say, when I say that, let me just quantify what I mean. I remember the first country that I went to in Africa was South Africa. Mm. And I came back and I was excited to, like, this, this was in 2009, I was excited to have finally, you know, visited Africa and I had friends of mine saying, oh, you haven't been to Africa. You've been mm. to Africa light. You need to go to full fat Africa. That's sub-Sahara <laughs> Africa. And, you know, South yeah. Africa obviously is Africa the same way Great Britain is part of Europe. But yeah. Great Britain doesn't like to consider itself part of Europe. It will consider itself <laughs> as being Great Britain. Well, that's another story. So it's that, <laughs> sort, of, it's that sort of like sort yeah. of notion mm. of um, being different but being part of at the same time. But South Africa is very different to yeah. Sub-Saharan Africa, as is North Africa different to yeah. Sub-Saharan Africa. Absolutely. So... Um, you know, about, I remember there being, you know, articles several years ago, and, and I'm, I'm sure you did articles as yes, well. Yes, I think about, I wrote many of them. Yeah, exactly, about the opportunities and about the PR industry in Afri- in Southern Africa. Mm. And I think some of the big agencies have made some sort of effort into mm. having strategic partnerships with agencies yeah. in Kenya, yeah. agencies in Ghana, mm. agencies Rwanda, um, in Nigeria, in Rwanda, Nigeria, absolutely, yeah. Nigeria. Mm. Um, and some of them are working well, some of them aren't working um, yeah. so well. And I think the key is to find the right partner, Yeah. Um, as with everything. And the key is to really, when you're, when you're expanding and your, your HQ is in New York City, you know, you have to really understand that how you execute comms in the US and in the Europe is very different to how you execute comms in mm. some of these African markets. And each African market is, is different, different within itself. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of... Um, sort of both expansive thinking and accepting of how things are done. Mm. And that for some agencies is a complete sort of like, wow, we've got to, ch- we've got to you know, change the way we work just for these markets. I mean, and for some of them, that's just too much to even start thinking about. Yeah. Is most of your work there, is it for international companies in Africa or is it for indigenous players it's been it's, it's a bit of both really yeah. so i've i've worked with um indigenous organizations um yeah. i've worked with indigenous pan-african investment companies who mm. were doing a lot of investments across mm. africa in different sectors so i mean that was a great experience but then we also worked with some startups yeah. um who are u.s based yeah. who are doing work across the continent so for example one of the clients that we're working with now is um, a tech startup called World Cover, mm. who just secured um, $6 million in Series A funding. Mm. And they basically um, leverage technology to provide um, climate insurance for small-scale farmers across mm. the continent, which is a first. It's a global first. And they work in Ghana, Uganda and Kenyan markets mm. and their series that their, their recent funding um, round is helping them expand across across the US. So we work with US organizations that are like that that are based here but they're doing work in Africa. Yeah. Um in in the tech space and startup space. And we've been doing that really sort of getting more business actually mm. in yeah. the tech space 
um, from US companies. So it's not even the big US companies, it's no. some of the smaller ones. Yeah, I would imagine there's quite a lot of demand, actually. It's, it's actually growing mm. a lot. Um, yeah. I started... I started working um, sort of in African markets, like I said, 10 years ago. Mm. And it was very slow in mm. the beginning. And it certainly has sped up. I mean, like with any business, you have peaks and troughs. But mm. it certainly has sped up in the last in the last several years. And I would say increasingly in the last two years. Mm. So um, that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting, though, and it could just be because of the size of our consultancy, Seymour Media. But what's interesting, though, is the number of startups mm. that are US-based and UK-based, because I have an, a, a partner um, agency that is part of the wider Seymour Media um, family, and they work in the tech startup space in from out of London. Mm. And should they say the same thing? You know, the startup space when it comes to tech is really blowing up mm. across the continent. And those are their small companies. And mm. so I think they like working with an, another small agency. Yeah. Um, just a bit nimble. Um, our retainer fees are not quite as high. <laughs> and we sort of understand that entrepreneurial journey as mm. well. So it's, um, it's an exciting time, but it's not without challenges because yeah. it's very different doing comms there. Do you work with um, local PR firms at all? In Africa, do you? Do you well, we have our, we have our teams. You, so yeah. we have a team. Um, we have uh, consultants who work with us yeah. in Nigeria, okay. um, in Ghana, in Kenya. When it's a bigger project, mm. um, we will partner with mm-hmm. agencies. And one of the things that um, I really made a point of doing when I first started going to um, mainly West Africa, mainly Nigeria, is where I, I've spent the lion's share of my time. I'm mm. um, really getting to know the local PR industry yeah. through the Nigerian Institute of Public Relations. Yes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're a great bunch of folks over yeah, there. Yeah, we deal yeah. with them a lot. Actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And they are really dedicated to the industry. Yeah. Um, and so I'm thinking in particular of Yomi. Yomi, I'm sure Yomi of who you know. Yeah, needs no introduction. <laughs> exactly. Shout out to Yomi if he's listening. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but Yomi, who um, ever since I went to Nigeria 10 years ago, he's he's been nothing but um, welcoming and he's like the face of PR in, in Nigeria. Mm. Um, and he works with APRO, who I know that you partner yep. with. Yeah, we have the, I think it's next week. Yes. In fact, in Kigali, mm-hmm. Sabre Awards Africa. And yes, that's into right. Into Summit Africa yeah. in, with APRO. Yeah. yeah, and I think even the fact that, you know, you guys are like now doing more in Africa. I mm. mean, when did you start doing that? Was that two years ago? Well, we did our first event in Africa, in South Africa, in South which Africa, was a roundtable yeah. actually five years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we, we launched the conference properly in South Africa uh, four years ago, and we did it three times, so three years yes, in South yeah. Africa, and now we've moved it to Rwanda, to Kigali, right. which mm-hmm. I'm very happy about. Mm-hmm. South Africa was great, but mm-hmm. I think almost like what you said, it, you know, it's it's easier in South Africa. And I mean, it, there's just a lot of a lot of firms and a lot of people who who aren't who aren't going to engage. I don't think as much right with um, with an event in South Africa, and never will. Yeah, but they will with one in Kigali, in right? Rwanda. Yeah, um, and it's interesting because um, there's. Even in the last few years, the 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 Kigali becoming a conference destination, mm. that's something new that's been that's happened. Yeah. Um, There's another conference later this year. I think. There is. Yeah. That's and that's why I was looking at um, the Global African Forum on yeah. Communications. Yeah. Um, so the Global Africa Communication, the Global Africa Forum on Communications, um, which I'm actually speaking um, yeah, at I that saw conference. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and and so are a lot of other 
brands are involved in that Coca-Cola. They mm. have somebody speaking. Um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm. The Minister of Information for Ghana is speaking. Um, you know, it's just interesting because Rwanda's done so much to, in the last several years, to sort of turn their country around mm. as well as sort of shift the global perception of Rwanda. When, when people think of Rwanda, they tend to think of the genocide. Yeah. And that happened if 20 years ago. Yeah. Right. So over 20 25 years ago. Years 25 ago. years ago. Ex- yeah. Exactly. So um, 25 years ago. So mm. they've done a lot to move on mm. from that while yeah. still recognizing that, which is important. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that they are now like the conference you know, a yeah, leading conference of the nation. Because when people talk about Ireland... It never used to be. You know, they don't kind of... You know, it's not like... It, it's the, about the troubles and that's the yeah. number one thing. Ireland's now a huge business right. destination, right? Yeah. It's a totally different narrative. Totally different. And, um, you know, I think they still have a long way in terms of... You know, if I haven't been to Rwanda. This will be my first mm. time going in August. Okay. But everyone tells me that yes, you know, the conference, you know, sort of um, space is, is is great. But there still isn't much to do um, in terms of sort of like oh, in Kigali. Yeah, in Kigali, yeah, in terms of like socializing. Go at, go, I mean, go up to the mountains, maybe. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, which is in stark contrast to somewhere like Kenya or somewhere yeah. like Nigeria. But you know, um, doing a conference in Nigeria logistically can be very, very difficult because of the power issues. Yeah. Um, the cost of internet cost. access um, yeah. for a conference center or a conference venue is is huge. Mm. Um, I've, and these yeah. are the things I think people don't always know, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's maybe this assumption that you, know, you can just pitch up and plug in and... Yeah, I wish it was. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. I mean, you can pitch up and plug in, but you can when you plug in, you might not get any power. Yeah, so right. you know, you have all these things to think about. I've I've sat on the board of Social Media Week Lagos um, mm. for the last seven years, and okay. we've done conferences at different venues across across Nigeria, across Lagos, really. Mm. And um, you know, one of the biggest expenses. I mean, just a huge expense is getting the power because you can't rely on just the power for the venue you have to get your generators and get your generators and then you need to make sure that you have internet access and you know at your venue and that gives a huge expense so these are things that you really have to think about that you can take for granted uh, which is why it's it's so important I think when you are coming from outside of the continent and Mm. you want to do something in the continent work with local partners Mm -hmm. I think sometimes there's a notion that you know you can sort of go in there and you can just you know like you said, pitch up and do it yourself. But there's there's so much sort of um, intel and knowledge that you need to know from each of those individual markets. That's so important. Mm. Um, just from knowing who to partner with to some basic logistics. Yeah. Um, so it's just important to take that into consideration. Yeah, sure. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about diversity in the industry. It's a hot topic, a mm. lot of talk. Um, now, you're British, mm-hmm. as our listeners may have gathered already. Um, from your your home county's accent, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but you're of uh, you're of Caribbean descent. That's right. My mother is Jamaican and my father's from Barbados. Oh, okay. but I was born and raised in in, in England. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, now you're in New York. Yeah. Uh, and the industry here, I think it's fair to say, agencies in particular. Mm. Still not particularly diverse. Mm-hmm. You worked at the big agencies when they yes. were probably even less diverse. Yeah, uh, I mean, they were less diverse, but 
you know, it, this this is actually like a, a topic of frustration for me okay. because I can, I can um, imagine. because I feel and that I've been I moved to America and I moved to New York in particular in the early two thousands. And I began working in the agency world when I first moved here. So we're talking coming up for 20 years. Mm-hmm. There's been no, there's no change. Right. There's no, and that's, I'm talking 20 years. There's no change. Um, I've had, you know, my, my roles that I've had at the, at the agencies, I was always working with the C-suite within the agencies. Mm. Um, not myself as a C-suite executive, sorry. Not myself, but because of the roles that I had within the agencies, I was always working with the CEOs and so on. Yeah. And always the one of a few women in the room, mm. but women has increased slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, always the only the only person of color in the room. And even when I go to bigger agencies now, and when I do get brought in to work, to, to consult mm-hmm. with some of these bigger agencies now, the the diversity, lack of diversity is just startling. Yeah. And it's a source of frustration to me because there are certain, and I won't name names, but there are certain agencies that will sponsor some of these diversity events. Mm. But I know that it's literally just to, you know, to cross off a line on a spreadsheet mm. because uh, they will talk about sort of supporting diversity. But then you look at these organizations and there's there's no diversity whatsoever. Mm. Um, I've had my own experiences where, you know, just because... I've worked in a big agency background and because whilst I, I, I'm an independent consultant, I've, I stay very much in the loop um, mm. in terms of keeping relevant and keeping up to date in the industry. Mm. So I often get approached by these bigger agencies uh, mm. to potentially, you know, pack up shop and work with them. Mm. And um, there's one particular agency that I will not name, but I'm so tempted to. Mm. And I think I had nearly 15 interviews mm. Um, I was the CEO signed off on mm. wanting to give me this like big role, and I remember having a meeting with the the manager, the GM of their New York office. And um, as soon as he saw me, I just knew that he, as soon as he he saw me, I knew that he didn't want to. Mm. It's one of those things. I knew that it, I knew that at that point, I was, this probably wasn't going to happen, yeah. even though I'd already negotiated salary and and sort of um and it was a global role it was incorporating some working africa that had all been signed off on and mm. i i then saw you know they then had the excuse of oh well we decided not to um you know have to fill that role we decided not to have that role mm. only see that role a few months later you see the 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 announcement go out and there's a white male who's got the role mm. um and you know you it's frustrating because they a lot of agencies will talk about diversity, but there's no real commitment behind it. Mm. it. It really is just words, and that has not changed in 20 years. Do you think that it can only change if clients make it change? I think so. Um, mm. It was just a few years ago, wasn't it, when um, the CMO from HP was it? Antonio Lucio. Yes, yeah, right. And yeah, I mean, two or three years ago. Two or three yeah. years ago, he, he sort of put his sort of like stake in the ground and said mm. if the agencies don't diversify in terms of gender and mm. race and sort of diversify in terms of sort of, you know, diverse, diversifying your sort of workforce is, is, it is having more women. It mm. is having in leadership positions. It is having more people of color. And people of color, there's a spectrum of people mm. of color. That's yeah. African-American. It's mm. Latinx. It's, you know, it's Pacific Islanders. And then mm. age as well, um, which is really important. Um, mm. And I think 
it's it, it's going to take a long time. I, I and I think it's really going to be pushed by dollars. I think mm. when you're forced to do it, um, you'll do it, and mm. if you're not forced to do it, you won't. Yeah. Um, I you know I think one of the people that I respect deeply um, in the industry is um, Kim Hunter. Mm. Um, Kim yeah. Hunter's a dear friend, and he is very very dedicated. Yeah. to a diversity in the industry through his Legrand Foundation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he even says that, you know, it's they, they claim to be about diversity, but when it really comes down to it, mm. you know, we, could, we don't know where to look. But it's the access issue as well, isn't it? Because I feel like at the lower levels of the industry, um, they're relying on people who are affluent. Yes. Aren't they, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To come in and mm-hmm. not need that much salary and right. to also maybe already be living somewhere rent free rent free yeah in new york or heavily subsidized yeah, in or some in way new york. Yeah. And, then, and then of course you will end up with a certain type of person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think and um it's almost like the whole model needs yeah. to change yeah i mean that that's actually a brilliant point because it is i mean at the lower level levels of the industry you know the salaries are not very high mm. new york's a very expensive place yeah. the bigger agencies are certainly are certainly here i think some of the smaller agencies probably do a bit better when it comes mm-hmm. to diversity but the bigger ones certainly have a lot of room for improvement um you know it is an access issue and that i think i think that's something to be to sort of think about not just for the PR industry, but for many industries. Yeah. You know, I don't think that's unique to the to the PR industry. Um, you know, one thing I will say is that I think the way the way that I got into the PR agency through the bigger agencies was because my first job here was with McCann Erickson doing mm. um, PR and communications um, for the actual agency itself. Yeah. And so straight away I was with a big agency. Yeah. And then once you're in, it's a little easier to go from sister agency to sister agency mm-hmm. um but to even get in is extraordinarily the barriers to entry are there and yeah. you're you're up against people who have got you know families and friends with big networks yeah I know. um who will you know push your resume to the top of the pile yeah. um and I'm, I'm amazed at yeah. how many kids of right are in the industry yeah absolutely and you know what what can one say about that because if you're fortunate enough to be, you know, a child of person mm. X or, you know, neighbor of yeah. <laughs> person X, I mean, who wouldn't take advantage of that? Yeah, I would, right. you would, you know. I, I wish, <laughs> I wish I could. Yeah. <laughs> you know that. I mean, we would if some, you know, that's because that's what networking's about. If we're, mm. if we're honest, but it's just unfortunate that that that, that sort of is so skewed mm. um, towards sort of certain groups. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the other thing, the other point, I always, I was kind of think is really important to discuss is because we know about the recruitment issues but the retention issues really important in particular the cultural context that exists in agencies Mm -hmm. just doesn't seem to be set up to welcome and accommodate people from different cultural backgrounds Mm -hmm. and it's still very homogenous around just little things like what music is on. And yeah. What are the conversations about? Yeah. And, and what are the shared, um, not necessarily values, but what are the shared things that people are doing? Yeah. Because you know, the agencies live on their kind of, you know, what are we doing on Monday evening or Tuesday mm-hmm. evening, Wednesday Right, evening. right, yeah. But Taco Tuesdays. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right. But it's it's very homogenous, right? Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, Aaron, I find this 
this particular um, issue quite hard mm. to um, speak on because culturally, my background isn't American. Yeah, right. So culturally speaking, I'm sort of coming in mm. um, very differently to somebody who would be, fair enough, I'm a, I'm a black British woman. Yeah. But culturally speaking, that's very different to being a black American woman. Yeah, sure. So I, I find that this quite difficult, I think, to sort of maybe fully relate to because mm. culturally... Okay. Yeah. I'm coming as a British person, yeah. not as an African-American person. Right. Yeah. So some of the sensibilities that may be there don't exist for yeah. me personally. Yeah. Um, and also, but interestingly, some of the interactions that I may get mm. from other people would may be different from yeah. if I was an African-American person. Sure. Um, so, you know, but, the, you know, so I do find this quite difficult sometimes to really fully um, embrace because that it doesn't just, the interaction with me from other people is not just rested on race, but it's rested on nationality as yeah. well. And, you know, mm. Americans like Brits. <laughs> Americans like Brits. I think and the accent helps. I think the accent maybe helps. And and so I I know, I mean, I remember once, um, and I'll be very transparent in this, I remember once with one of the big agencies I worked at and uh, the HR person was African-American. Mm. And I've never actually mentioned the story before, so it'll be interesting to see how many reactions to this. But I remember coming into the office one day, and she was an HR person, and we were talking. And she said, um, you know, the, the atmosphere here is so hostile. Mm. And, she, and she said, I feel like I'm coming into war every day. I'm in the office as a mm. black woman coming in here. And she said, don't you feel the same? And I didn't. And I didn't. Mm. Okay. I didn't feel like I was walking into a war zone. Yeah. Um, but she did. Now, mm. is that you know what's the what's the reason for that? I don't know. It it could be is it because we have different cultural sort of experiences? Myself and this woman, and we're looking at things through different prisms. Possibly, could it be a personality thing? Possibly, it could be uh, you know a plethora of um, different reasons. But I found that really interesting because she said she feels like she's coming into a war zone. Every day she comes to the office, and I didn't feel like that at that agency. Yeah. And sh she was astonished that I didn't feel like that, mm. and I was astonished that she felt like that. Yeah. So in answering sort of that question, I, th I'm, yeah, I find it a little bit difficult because I think my sort of background as a British person just gives me a slightly different prism in terms of, you know, how I maybe interact with other people and how other people maybe interact with me. Yeah, no question. I mean, and, and personally. You know, I, I see it obviously differently as well, given my own background. Mm -hmm. um, but we did we wrote a story about this. We did some research a couple mm -hmm. of years ago, and this came out as the big kind of signal finding from, um, I think, in particular African-Americans, mm -hmm. but also um, uh, Latin community as well, that just they felt they weren't being accommodated culturally. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a, you know, it was almost like it's something that hadn't even occurred to agencies. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to, I mean, there's some easy sort of activations that agencies mm. can do around sort of, you know, national initiatives. So it's, it's Black History Month. I mean, that's something easy for an agency to sort of, okay, it's everywhere, it's February, it's Black History Month, let's do something. I mean, mm. that's something 
easy for an agency and a company to do. Um, or it's Pride Month, MLK Day, Martin yeah. Luther King's birthday. That's a national holiday and that's a great opportunity. I mean, the, the literally everybody has that day off. Mm. Um, that's a huge opportunity to do something in the office around equality. Mm. Um, and equality is is now uh, way more expansive to include other groups. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are some real basic things that agencies can do that are basic in terms of, you don't have to think about it, it's visible. It's, mm. it's, it's Black History Month, for example, and so on. Um, but sometimes it's just, they just don't see, they, they just don't see the need to do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, it should, it, sometimes it does take that one person of color in the office to mm. be the one to suggest it. Um, you know, if if you're looking at things from your own individual perspective, as a, per, you know, as a Caucasian person or as an Indian person or as a black person, you can't necessarily always expect people to think look of, look at things from everybody else's perspective. Mm. Um, but then there are certain roles within companies that that's their job. Yeah. Their job is specifically to make sure things are inclusive. Yeah. And so those people have a big responsibility to actually do their job and do it well. Mm. Um, because they are trained and that's their role to actually make sure that diversity and inclusion actually means diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Claudine, thank you so much. Thank we you could, so much. Could, I feel like we could talk for quite a long time about this, and maybe we should next time. Sure. Um, but it's a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for inviting podcast, me. podcast, for your first podcast. My first ever podcast, yeah. and I'm delighted that it was with you. Thank you, and definitely not your last. All right. Thank you. Take care, thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman from The Homes Report. And very happy to be joined in New York today by Brian Morrissey, who is, I think, president and editor-in-chief of DigiDay. That's right, Aaron. Correct. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for, coming. Thanks for coming by our office. Yeah, no, it's great. We're in the DigiDay offices, which are, in fact, the Business Insider They're offices. not the Business Insider offices. <laughs> I didn't business know this. Insider building and ah, like right. they okay. not, not their entire building but um mm. yeah they have two floors we have half of okay. one of those floors do you, do you ever write kind of a, a story about business insider and then they they come around looking for you no it's, it's, it's never happened <laughs> no okay no. Right. Um, well, you they see some of the commercial folks in the uh in the men's room right okay so what well, i asked pete i was like what's going on what's, yeah um, what's the next pivot you know exactly what is I the always, next? I always see them like playing. They have some sort of like shuffleboard um, thing out there, and I see their like salespeople like often like it's like I'll be going to the restroom at like you know four thirty or so, and and they've got a beer open, they've got wow. the shuffleboard out, so I'm like it must be a good quarter. Yeah, well that's that's the digital media for you, <laughs> I guess. It's just shuffleboard and um, and beer. Yeah, but tell us a little bit about DigiDay because uh, it seems like your brand has grown quite successfully over the past um, eight or nine years. Yeah. So we're about 10 years old. Mm -hmm. We started um, really as an events company, which is unusual because usually you see mm. media companies go into events, um, and this was a little bit backwards. So Nick Freeze founded us 10 years ago, started with an event, brought together a bunch of publishers uh, who were trying to figure out all the changes that were happening to their businesses because of the influx of digital technology. Mm. And so I joined about eight years ago and, and the opportunity that, that both Nick and I saw were to take this events platform um, and to build uh, content and, and, and really a brand on top of it. I think events are a great way to get to people together. The problem, and, it, and they monetize well, the problem is um, 
it's not a way really i don't think to uh to build a a sustainable brand you need to have content you need to have influence mm. um, and the way you get influence the best way you get it is through day in and day out <clears throat> so editorial yeah so yeah. we spent um you know uh, several years trying to to build up um you know that editorial credibility i think we did a fairly good job um mm. and so we're taking that model and expanding it into new areas. Um, mm -hmm. We started a, uh, a publication that was originally focused on fashion called mm -hmm. Glossy, and now it's it's fashion and beauty and the wild world of wellness, which I'm happy to go deep into. Mm. Wellness um, influencers. Wellness influencers. Yeah. Um, and we are soon um, expanding into uh, the modernization of retail. Oh, good. Because I thought you were going to say PR then. And no. I was a little concerned. No. No. <laughs> no, no plans. No plans. <laughs> that, was a, that was that's a very actually, actually, that's a really good idea. <laughs> well, if we might have to cut this short. Yeah. Well, if you're looking for, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, options in the PR space, just let us know. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting you, you talked about the importance of building up that editorial credibility uh, I read elsewhere you don't like the phrase trade media because it implies cheerleading. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm guessing that, well, I know, I mean, you, you, Digiday doesn't cheerlead. Uh, how do you balance that kind of a stance with the fact that you are making money from yeah. these people? Uh, sort of. But, like, I think, um, I'll get to the model, like, in a second, but I think what, um, at least what I saw happening was there used to be this divide between consumer media and and trade media. So there was this, the stuff you you read because you're interested in it and, and the stuff you read and, and consume because it's relating to your work. Mm -hmm. I think those differences have evaporated and the expectations of, of people have changed completely. So mm -hmm. they used to accept, I mean, we used to accept all sorts of things. We used to accept that, you know, we had to go to the bank uh, in order to, like, withdraw money and stuff like this. There was all these things that I grew up with, which, looking back, are crazy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that has sort of gone away. So the expectations of things that um, people consume for professional reasons... Um, are pretty much the same as the things that they consume for yeah. um, just because they're interested in Yes, yeah, I totally agree. So I think that has, um, and I think trade media coasted for a long time on being boring and being cheerleaders um, mm -hmm. and, and, doing, and doing some pay for play because they could, because it was a protected industry, mm -hmm. like a lot of industries. Um, you know, Adweek and AdAge had, uh, you know, 75 to you know, 35 year head start on us, but only because like they didn't have a lot of competitors because the, the barriers to entry were too great. Mm. You know, they had the mailing lists, mm -hmm. they had the, the, the print distribution, they had the access. Mm. Um, but I think what happened and what we saw happening was there was tremendous amounts of business change going on um, in the publishing world in for advertisers and for agencies too on the marketer side. And in those times of tremendous flux, um, that old model of um, of doing some cheerleading, of doing the 50, 50 under 50 lists and mm. stuff like this, and then going and shaking down um, the people on the list clients to do congratulatory ads, that sort of goes away. Mm -hmm. Because um, you can do a little bit of that, I guess. But like, what people really need is they really... The need for like real critical information goes 
up. Mm. In static industries, I think you can do the, the old school trade model. But the problem is these days, because of technology, I don't know many industries that are static. Mm -hmm. So I think that's like exciting. And I mm. think that's why we're seeing a sort of rebirth of B2B in some way. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would agree with that diagnosis. Actually. We have to disagree. What can we... We'll, we'll find something, I'm sure. I'm sure. I hope. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about um, digital publishers, or let's say publishers on digital, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and we saw the pivot to video. Um, what happened there? What went wrong? <laughs> I mean, I think that there's a bunch of different diagnoses, but I think broadly we saw a lot of uh, venture-funded publishers who uh, got funding on a set of assumptions that didn't turn out. So the core assumption, um, because I've seen this chart, everyone rolled out the Mary Meeker chart, mm -hmm. and that showed um, the amount of time spent on the Internet um, and then this gulf between the time spent and the amount of budget spent. And the idea was something needed to close that gap, and these, these publishers will close that gap. So a lot of digital publishers sprang up, and the idea was they were going to hoover up all that money. Mm. Um, the, the problem was Google and Facebook hoovered up all that money because um, you know digital advertising uh, just became a data game and publishers can't um, win that. And so these publishers were stuck with these display ads that because of programmatic advertising were completely commoditized. Their audiences were commoditized. Mm. And they couldn't build enough scale in order to make the numbers work with the expectations that they had raised at. Mm. So video, broadly, was looked at as a lifeboat. And so the decisions for many publishers, not all, but many publishers to pivot into video was made for venture capitalists and maybe a distant second for advertisers. Mm -hmm. And users were somewhere around like ninth or tenth <laughs> i don't know who's but i don't know who does two to nine but it wasn't it wasn't users people were not you know clamoring for mike to you know let it feel only if only you guys could you know you know pump out some like first person video mm, yeah um and the money didn't follow no i mean i think the big the big challenge with video is that it takes a long time to figure out it takes a lot of upfront costs mm. And, um, you know, but the, the core the core issue was this wasn't a core competency of a lot of mm -hmm. these publishers. And, you know, just I keep going back to it. This was not something this was not audience driven. Mm. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is the wreckage of people making decisions that were not really audience driven. Um, mm. And. Some of it is not totally their fault. Yeah, there was a lot of exogenous forces like around Google and Facebook and mm. all that, that and programmatic that you can sort of point the finger to. But, you know, ultimately, publishers are responsible for navigating the environment they're in. Mm. And many fail to do that. I'm so glad we didn't pivot to video. It's such a great example of this kind of herd mentality yeah. you see. So what's the next pivot? Because I find <laughs> it hard to believe there won't be something. We already, some... We're already seeing it. It's a pivot to paid. Oh, okay. Right. right? Okay. I mean, because it's like you jump and it's like, well, ugh, man, display ads are not going to cut okay. it. Okay. So you, you've, you've made the pivot to paid, have you not? Uh, in a way, yes. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think ours is a little different. Of course, I'm going to say that. <laughs> um, just because, um, and that's where I see the sort of to, to loop it back to the B2B and why B2B is more relevant now than ever. At the core of a B2B model and our model is community, right? And it sounds cheesy and stuff, but it's really true. I mean, our... Mm-hmm. Our company began with a, a group of 60 publishers getting together in a room. It was mm-hmm. based off of community. And I think when it comes to events and being event, events being part of our DNA, that really helps, not just on a monetization perspective, but because it brings you face-to-face with your audience and you really start to build things around, build editorial, mm-hmm. around audience needs that you find out like in person. Mm. I mean, one of the great things about um, B2B and it always having events is that you be, you come face to face with your audience like quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and you don't have that in, in a lot of media. Mm. So I think that allows for a lane in order to have a balanced business model. I think what a lot of what you're seeing in B2C with the pivot to paid is people are trying to balance de-risk themselves from over-reliance on advertising that is the number one goal Mm. i think b2b has always been a much more balanced revenue model Mm -hmm. it's never been a display ad driven model no um so i think that's the the difference um and ideally you know it's people's corporate credit cards Mm. it's easier OPM, yeah. other people's money. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so you're you are skeptical, let's say, about the pivot to paid as it as it applies to broader media brands. I mean, I think it's going to be challenging for the same brands that are challenged in any other pivot, and those are the ones that are in the middle, mm. right? So, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, they're fine. Yeah, yeah, W, W, W. Mm. Um, focus media brands, um, a Digiday, if you will, you know, mm. Stratechery, mm. the information. Like, I mean, you go on and on, and particularly this is where B2B like intersects. Um, they are more likely to succeed, even like a Barstool Sports, mm. right? Because they have a very defined audience that is very attached to it. They have a community, and I think that they'll be able to um, to make this. You get into the ones in the middle, mm. and it's a lot harder because I think a lot of what they have become in their digital I- iterations for those that were, like, say, magazine brands, is they become indistinguishable mm. a- about from each other. Like, I-, I keep going back to... And a lot of this is driven by the display ad model because when you get on that that treadmill that scale treadmill you have to keep doing you start mm-hmm. to optimize to mm-hmm. to massive numbers yep. and guess what that means doing a lot of the same shit everyone else is doing because everyone has the same tools yeah you know there's a reason Meghan Markle draws audiences mm-hmm. like you know there you are going to be the 10,000th person writing about the royal baby because that is going to draw clicks mm-hmm but then you can't turn around and be like, oh, we're totally differentiated and mm. blah, blah. You can't you have to, it both and ways. And you need to pay for this. Yeah, because mm. you know people will people are not paying for the 10,000th the article on the Royal Baby. Does digital flatten media brands, do you think? Yeah. I think what, I think what digital, it, what we've clearly seen across a lot of industries is 
the pull to commoditize, I would say. Mm. You know, what, what Google and Facebook have done is commoditize mm. brands. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, you put, and Amazon, and you know, you, you, you put a brand into, into Google or you speak it into Alexa mm. and, you know, algorithms take over. Yeah, um, but it's interesting because with both of those, particularly with Facebook, publishers were complicit. You know, they didn't need to um, to turn their content into Facebook instant articles, no, or whatever. Um, and that, you know, that's been a, a ch- another challenge that they faced is giving up their content to these platforms. Is that yeah. something that they're able to salvage now? I mean, yes, depends. I mean, mm. the I think the 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 publishers that have a a core differentiation and a real brand and a real community around that brand will absolutely find a way. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these things are just challenges to navigate. Mm-hmm. But those that did not have those brands and real communities and audiences, because a lot of people had what they thought were audiences, but they were really Facebook's audience, mm. right? I mean, come on, they weren't really their audience. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I see the numbers. What it was like, uh, I just saw, like, uh, I was reading an article about how like Britain Co is like in danger and all this sort of things and how they they claim an audience of 110 million. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yo, come on, what are you counting? Like every single person that's seen a pin on Pinterest, mm. like, I mean, that's the kind of nonsense that um, you know navigating your way out of that is really difficult because you've optimized to it. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. So. Digital fraud, and all right, let's get into let's it. let's do it. Um, so we we've heard a lot from from brands, well, some brands in particular, let's say Unilever, P and G, uh, about how they are focused on tackling this, um, and uh, you know how it's completely unacceptable, and they want they're outraged. Metrics. They they're are outraged. Yeah, there is a lot of outrage <laughs> out there. Um, We've mandated dollar video CPMs, and we're outraged some of these video ads are appearing on these Korean porn sites. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, there's that as well. How How did this happen? Um, I mean, is it something that they can really tackle? Uh, or has the has the horse bolted? I don't know. I mean, like, do they have the wherewithal to do it? Like, I mean, ultimately, mm. you get what you paid for. And I... I don't shed a lot of tears for Unilever or any mm. of these big brands you don't? at night. Well, no, because it's I so think heartless. You, you can, you can. <laughs> will anyone think of Unilever? I mean, <laughs> who will cry for Unilever, Brian? <laughs> yes. Um, when they came for Unilever, I said nothing. Uh, no, because a lot of the problems that exist in the overall digital media and advertising industry and the agency industry. Directly, it, it's not even a six degrees thing. It's probably mm. like a two degrees thing. Land at, at the doorstep of these big brands making short-term decisions that overall have led to a pretty screwed up mm. ecosystem, right? Yeah. So these brands um, have been focused on cutting costs in, in the name of efficiency mm-hmm. um, for so long and mm. squeezing the supply chain at every single at every single step of the way that when that supply chain then becomes unhealthy um, and abnormal um, for them to turn around and say my god what is going on here how did this happen mm. 
I mean, maybe it's time to sort of look in the mirror. I mean, rather than pontificate at conferences about this, um, Gosh. because it's kind of a revolutionary idea. <laughs> because you know, look, nobody nobody likes the idea that there is, except for those benefiting from it, that there's a ton of like of fraud and bullshit in the digital media supply chain. But you know, unless people are going to pay more mm. for quality then you can't have it both ways. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I just, I, I don't, so it, it's really hard for me to like, you know, shed many tears, the fact that, you know, Unilever is wasting a lot of money, mm. um, you know, because I'm pretty sure it can be traced back to decisions that Unilever itself, mm. I don't mean to call out Unilever specifically. Well, no, no, it's very clear brands. that you've got a particular agenda I've got to come to Unilever. <laughs> I've been wronged by one of their toilet paper products. <laughs> I can't imagine which brand it was, <laughs> but I mean, I didn't know this. But yes. Some sort of body wash went, revealed. went wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe it was Axe. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, okay, so you talked about digital fraud. We talked about digital fraud, and that kind of leads us nicely to influences, I feel, um, because that just seems to be out of control. You know, there's, there's so much money being spent now on mm -hmm. influences. Uh, I think everyone seems to think at some point the, the bottom will fall out of the market. Yeah. It's not happening. Why not? Um, I think like a lot of things you probably see in in marketing, I mean, it's still kind of like a shiny object of mm. some sorts. Like, um, you know, look, the the digital media you know, digital media plans have become pretty, you know, static. It's like, okay, you're going to dump all your money in, like, Google and Facebook and Instagram. And, like, you know, influencers are sort of the sexy part of it. Mm. Um, but anytime, like, a lot of money goes towards something, you're going to have a lot of nonsense, um, mm. a lot of grifters popping up. Um, and the fact is, like anything in in digital media... Like I always say, like the the performance indicators of any sort of new tactic in in digital media, I remember being said to me, only go in one direction. That's down. <laughs> right. Like you yeah. know, the display ads used to have a sixty percent click through rate at mm -hmm. some you know for one month. <laughs> now it's like what? Um, so I I think what you end up seeing is the commoditization of this. Cause again, I just sort of go back to my ironclad theory of, of digital technology commoditizes everything. So mm. it'll commoditize this kind of stuff because people will start to tune it out. Mm. Um, and then it'll be on to the next thing. Do you get any sense it's becoming more scientific? No, no, <laughs> no. Do you? Okay. No, but I think you're probably closer to it than I am. I mean, it doesn't seem to me like, Brands or their agencies are really that clear on what they're buying or why they're buying it. But I would look to the motivations. Like, I mean, who, like, usually there's a motivation when there's like opacity in the digital mm -hmm. media marketplace. I usually think that there's a motivation on like one or oftentimes many sides to have that opacity. Mm. Like, you look at programmatic advertising, um, um, you know, all of the, problems of programmatic like i don't think it's not it's like it's not a fraud it's a conspiracy because like there's a bunch of different sides that benefit from from that yeah. opacity right right yeah um so like when 
when ads show up somewhere they shouldn't be and everyone is able to point the finger at, at everyone else and stuff like this mm. i that's not a bug that's a feature mm. um yeah. Yeah. so i'm it's sure right. agencies see this look they've had this is my sense. I mean, they've had margin clawed and clawed and clawed away from them. Mm, and you now know, they have. They made hay a little bit with mm. the programmatic and trading desk. They were able to do a little, mm -hmm. little cheeky double dipping. Uh, but that got shut off. It mm. sucks. And so, <laughs> who knows? Influencers is probably another pot of money to. Well, I think they're. Yeah, certainly. Wet it's, their beaks. I mean, yeah, they've. <laughs> but they've just created this, these, these monsters. These monsters. <laughs> Now you're attacking well, Kylie. Yeah. No, no, no 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 names in particular. I mean I I wouldn't be able to tell you that many of them. Um <laughs> but well they become like a parody, right? I mm. mean that's the that's the big challenge. Yeah, but the the money is still flowing freely. Yeah. But it's but again, it's one of those things where it's like a yes but. I guess that's like everything is mm -hmm. you know, there are a level of these um "Quote unquote influencers who have built um, tremendous connections with their um, communities and yeah. are able to do, and mm -hmm. I hate the word activate, but they're able to do really interesting things because of that. I'm like using every buzzword I hate that like authentic connection with with wow. their audiences. I know <laughs> it's horrible. Uh, and so you know, I mean, look, I mean, like what Emily Weiss was able to turn." you know, her blog into Glossier, mm. like, that's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I, you know, leave aside all the Kardashians and stuff like this. There there, there are some really interesting mm -hmm. um, things going on. I think the, the problem is there's a lot of charlatans mm. um, out there. Well, it comes back to what you said, right? It's if you, I think it's the same strategy even for influencers. It's if you have that, that editorial credibility and that community. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of, the, the same rules in a way. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're just different types of media entities, I guess, in some mm, way, shape, they or form. Are, yeah, they're media brands, uh, I guess, of their own. Yeah. Um, but they're just making much more money, I would imagine. Well, it's a very, it's a very lightweight model, right? It's <laughs> like, you know, if you're an Instagram... Slow overhead. If you're an Instagram influencer, or what, you've got like a few Wranglers, you've got um, mm. the, the Instagram... Yeah. photographer i guess i don't I, know I, you probably have a few things you probably have some i mean <laughs> but it's a fairly lightweight model yeah yeah i would imagine so a lot of good margin lightweight sure. high volume i think but i don't know how scalable it uh it is so um i don't know i mean i know with vine there was that whole sort of they'd set up there was like a whole vine um studio type of approach yeah, yeah. Right? i don't know i'm not sure if that's happened on instagram I don't know. Yeah. We, had, we had a guy on the podcast here. Um, uh, he does Imagine, um, which has like the Quan and these like meme accounts and stuff. Oh, okay. um, but like in, in their original iteration, they actually like ran some kind of like there was like a, a Vine condo building like in. That's that's the one. I in Hollywood. Yeah. There. Yeah. There was a New Yorker article. Yeah. He was it. like skulking around the like uh, the gym, like trying to sign up Vine stars. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> I could have that wrong. Sorry. Sorry, Barack, if I <laughs> slandered you. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, okay, so finally, last but by no means least, I should ask you a question about the public relations industry, Okay. which we, of course, cover. Um, do you 
see much evidence of them being successful in their attempt in their attempts to kind of infiltrate the digital world. I suppose. I mean, I I'm gonna say this as as someone. So, my sort of disclaimer is I do not focus very closely at all on the public relations advertising agency industry but that Why won't not? stop me you're, that you're will not really stop me from out. commenting <laughs> as if i do uh Good. so that with that disclaimer out there um in covering agencies for many 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 years i know this they all want to get into each other's businesses yeah. that's what they want to do if if you're an agency that is um is really good at advertising, you want to do digital. If you're a digital agency that's really good at like building websites, you're going to call them digital products, and then you're going to, to want to do TV commercials. Um, if you're a public relations agency, you're going to want to do mm. advertising, you're going to want to do and, uh, <coughs> digital. Um, and I think, look, if you're a consulting agency now, you want to do advertising. It's like everyone's in everyone else's business so mm. I uh, you know some are gonna some are gonna make the leap and some some are gonna sort of fall back to what they're good at because mm. um, you know there's a lot of like there's PRing of this before you're really doing it I'm sure mm. like I mean I remember covering like these these search agencies that were trying to become like quote-unquote real digital agencies and mm. stuff yeah and they that. would they would like you know, it's sort of like fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. You know, they would claim they were doing all these kind of like, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And it's like, yeah, but most of most what you do is like SEO. Mm. Let's be yeah. real. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know. That's the, that's my general theory about agencies is they always want to do what the other agencies are doing. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I guess they say nobody wants to it. stick in their lane. No, I know. Yeah. No one wants to stick to because everyone's meeting. getting squeezed, you know. Yeah. So they see the they they see it as like a promised land, where there's easier and bigger budgets and um, yeah, and then pay. it's harder because that's not what they're known for and mm -hmm. stuff like this. But I think it's pretty typical. I mean, a business, you know, you got a set of clients. You like you either get more clients or you do more for your existing clients and the only mm -hmm. way you do more for existing clients is offering more services. Yeah. So horizontal. It's probably more efficient to to try to offer more services. Yeah, probably. All right. So anyone any any other consumer goods companies you want to attack? No, I'm I got, I, It's only Unilever. <laughs> poor Unilever. Um thanks so much. Yeah, for your time. Th thank you for this coming. This has been fun and um yeah, let us know when you're. Perhaps I don't know if you come to Asia. I'm uh, broadly the region. I go okay. to Japan. I, um, I because we have a we have a joint venture. We have a site there, Digiday Japan. Oh, okay, um, cool. Digiday.jp. Right. Um, so usually like once a year. Okay. But. Well, we'll probably see you in Cannes. I guess. Yes. All right. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Brian. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to the Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.